I have to say, this show's intro music, I think, is my favorite of all the shows. Which which one is this? Sing it. <laughs> Why don't you just sing it? This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash codeschool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 79 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Zuber. It's 1 p.m. in the afternoon, and if you're thinking that guy sounds like he's still wearing his PJs, you'd be right. Is 1 p.m. in the afternoon redundant? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we also have Pete Hodgson. Uh, hello from Sutro Tower. All right. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Before we get started, I know that there's some crossover with technologies between the different shows. And so I'm going to announce this here, even though it's a JavaScript event. I'm pulling together a remote JavaScript conference. It's going to be two weeks in the evening. That way people can basically DVR the television shows that they watch and watch the conference instead and get that development without having to talk to their boss to try and get the time off or pay a whole bunch of money to travel and then pay a whole bunch of money for a conference ticket. And because there's no venue, it should be pretty cheap. I'll have the site up by the time this goes live, so you can go check it out at jsremoteconf.com. But I thought I'd put it out there since... I'm looking also at doing a similar event for iOS, and so I'll let you know when I'm doing that too. But for the meantime, go check that out for me. All right, so we're into the show. We're going to be talking about communication patterns in iOS. And Jame, I guess, is our resident expert. So why don't you kind of get us started? Where where should we start in discussing this? Sure. This is a topic that I did some talks on this year. And we do a lot of talk about MVC, different patterns, how you design your your app. And we talked about it last week a little bit. But one of the things that people don't really talk about is how do we communicate with these different objects that we're creating? You know, we're breaking down our view controllers, making them skinny, you know, like Jay Thrash helped us with last week. But, you know, how do we communicate? You know, how do we get this this object to do what we want it to do? You know, and there's a three or four kind of base patterns. You've got, say, the delegate pattern, which is pretty basic. You know, you've been working with iOS for about 30 minutes before you run into your first delegate if you're doing anything with a table view. But there's, you know, a lot of different approaches. You know, you can use Notification Center, 
KVO is very powerful for that. And if you want to get crazy, you can use blocks as well. So those are the probably four basic ones. Interesting. So do we want to talk about what all of those different things mean? Sure. We can start with the delegate pattern. And, you know, that's the basic Apple-approved way of communicating to things. You create a delegate, you pass yourself into the delegate, and you wait for it to call back to you. So that's something that, you know, everyone knows how to do. If you've done any Apple stuff, it's it's baked into the framework. You know, it's an old pattern. I think it's in the Gang of Four book. And it works pretty well for a lot of things. You know, if you have one thing yet to keep track of, it, it works great. I think, like, it's called something different in the ga- in the Design Patterns book in the Gang of Four book. I think it's the Observer pattern in the Gang of Four book. Yeah, maybe. I think it's, like... I'm sorry, applications. Yeah, it's, like, one of those patterns that you can use the same mechanism in different contexts, and it has a different name, because essentially it's... I don't know, the way I think about it is it's just defining an interface with something and giving someone an implementation of that interface, but that's... That's just the mechanism of it rather than the spirit of why you're doing that thing, I guess. Yeah, anyway, sorry. (laughs) So the observer pattern to me usually centers around events. And so the idea is is that when you change an object, it fires a change event and something else is listening to it and that does stuff. Is that more or less how delegates work or is it explicit in the other direction where you have a hook or something that uh, you define on the object that then notifies or calls into some somewhere else. Yeah, I, I think we're kind of mixing our concepts here a little bit. The delegate pattern, I don't, I don't think that's the observer pattern. Like, as Alondo pointed out, the notification center, if you want to talk about observers, that's what we're talking about. And in the notification center, you basically, the object will send a notification and they don't really care about who receives it, they're just sending it. And each other objects can subscribe to different notifications. So the objects themselves don't really have to know anything about each other. You know, any type of classes or protocols, interfaces, that type of stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, like, to me, the the big difference between the delegate pattern and now that I think about it, all of the other kind of ways of communicating or or abstracting over just like a, a straight method call or a straight message passing is... Delegates are the only ones that are kind of typed, right? Like they're the only ones where you have, you know, a thing that has a type and it, you know, or at least a duct type in that it implements a protocol. And then you pass that thing around. Like everything else, you're you're like blocks and KVO and all the rest of it, you tend to be working on the level of individual methods. Like, but, but with a delegate, you're defining like basically a cluster of methods that you implement and then you pass around to, to someone else. Correct. Am I getting am I getting my naming mixed up again? No, I think you're right. And and, and the biggest thing for me, and Jamie, you're right. The first thing I was introduced when I started iOS development, of course, was the delegate pattern. It was visible on the first day. Uh, it out, you know, I was working on the table view app. But my initial sort of rule of thumb was if it was a one to one sort of relationship where I had one object that was depending on or delegating actions to another. And there I'm using the, the word in, in the definition, using delegation, where in terms of notification, they tend to use it in cases where there are multiple interested parties in something happening or could be potentially. So they would post a notification when an event occurred, but I tend to stick with delegation when there's only one object that I need to respond to an event occurrence. And I assign that as that, that object is that I make the delegate to that protocol. That's true, but it's sometimes it's not one to one, right? Like, so sometimes you can have, 
Okay, so now I'm going to show my getting confused with my naming again. Like if I have a if I have a method that's responding to a that's like bound to an action, for example. That's I guess that's not delegation, is it? That's something else. But I was just going to say, like a lot of so if you look at the classic delegate thing that everyone knows is the UI table view delegate, and when you implement that for all of the delegates protocols, you always take the subject of the message. As the first, the sender of the message is almost always the first parameter, right? So you have like table view, height for row, index path, or whatever. And the reason for that is because you can have one delegate dealing with multiple delegators, right? Like so, the multiple pe- multiple different table views could be bound to the same delegate. So you can have a one to many, but it's the opposite way around to the one to many you would have with notifications. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean. How many times do we have to subclass the table view to get it to do what we want? Mm-hmm. Not very often, but we can always create another delegate that handles different behavior that we want to do. So in that case, it's a very powerful pattern. You can create one base thing and let other things do you know, the, kind of the, the heavy work for you. But as Alana pointed out, there's kind of a drawback to it in that you basically have one delegate at a time. You don't really create multiple delegates for your table view. So if you're creating some other class that has delegates and you want to have more than one, I've seen people create arrays of delegates, which you can do, and it'll just fire off to each one in its array. So it's possible to do, but it's kind of bulky. But that's where things like the notification center make more sense, because it's kind of baked in, and you don't have to do little things like managing arrays for that type of thing. Well, and that's the power of the observer pattern when you're talking about the notification center, is that, you know, it tells everybody that something happened, and then the, the ones that are interested then go and do whatever work they have to do. Whereas with the delegate, it you know it's an explicit relationship, and it's just one way. So that's the other interesting. I mean, it, it, like with all things in software, this is about trade-offs. The one of the things you sacrifice when you move to this multiple consumers model is you can't do request response anymore. So you can't call a de- with a delegate. I can say table view. What was my example? I just did uh, height for row index path, and I'll get an answer back from my one delegate. If I want an answer back from something, it needs to be a thing that I'm asking, right? But if we're doing notifications or one of these kind of fire and forget one-way things, then I don't have a way of asking something else a question and getting an answer back, which I guess is why you know you see these trade-offs and why sometimes we would use a, a delegate, for example, for table views, and in other places we would use notifications for something that's more kind of one-way fire and forget notification, well, notifications of things rather than deferring some logic to something else so that we can ask it questions and get answers back. So you mentioned delegates. I think we kind of get the idea there. Are there what, what were some of the other ones that you mentioned? You said KVO, which is a what key value object? Key value observing. Observing, okay. And this gives you a lot of the benefits of like the observer pattern you get with the notification center, where you don't really have to create explicit contracts for your things to behave to, so you're not really creating classes, but you're just listening to things that are happening. So if you have a model with something that happens, and I can't think of any model, you can listen to a property on there, and if that property changes, then you can register a callback that will get notified when this happens. Yeah, I had a recent discussion about this pattern with some of my coworkers, and it was brought up that this was a pattern that they tended to shy away from, and I've only used it once in the past, and it was basically to manage scrolling in, in multiple directions for a particular view that allowed the user to scroll basically like paging as well as vertical scrolling. And I was using KVO to monitor when 
the scroll view was changing so that I could sort of keep everything in balance because there were multiple multiple panels that needed to stay in sync. So they all needed to scroll together. I was having trouble thinking of another case where I would use it. I mean, that's using a pattern once every four years is <laughs> not a lot, but uh, they were concerned about pitfalls. And I was curious if you'd encountered any or have any rules of thumb of like when you would use KVO and when you would sort of stay away from it. Yeah, like handling scrolling is, is an ideal place where, you know, KVO works because you don't really have control of what's happening inside the scroll view to fire off a notification that it's being scrolled. And if you're using a delegate, you know, your you're, delegate is actually derived from scroll view, I, I believe. So you have one delegate that is actually doing that. So if you want to listen to different changes in scroll state, you can observe what's happening without throwing everything in in, in your table view delegate. So that's an ideal thing. So you're listening to something, it's happening. They don't know that you exist. It ex- You know, scroll view existed way before we did. But you can observe things that are happening. So that's, you know, a textbook example of a good good way to use it. The drawbacks are it's, you know, it's clunky. The syntax for it is, is pretty weird. If you have more than one thing you're listening to, that object, you know, all your KVO stuff comes through one method, you know, observe value for key path. And you're doing, if you've got more than one things you're listening to, you're doing like an if else, you're just checking string pairs and that gets a pretty large method. So that's kind of, that's a drawback to that. Also a drawback to KVO you know, it's very powerful, but it's easy to create weird bugs if you don't clean up after yourself, you don't remove your observing. Sometimes, you know, if, if an object stays around too long, you don't, you can get multiple observations and you get weird bugs. So you have to remember to clean up after yourself. And this is also a problem with the notification center. If you, you know, add a notification, let's say in your view did load, you also need, you need to be very careful to remove your observer in dialic. If you don't do that, very bad things are going to happen. You know, you need these crazy bugs that only happen every once in a while the second time you come to this view controller. So it's very important to clean up after yourself with Notification Center and with KBO. That's a great point. I ran into an issue once when I was adding an observer for an event, or adding an observer using notification, and I started getting all of the notifications because I didn't properly format the add observer call, and I was found out that my code was responding to all types of events that I, I wasn't even aware were happening in the system. Yeah, if you're subscribing to system events, you need to make sure you're getting the ones that you want. And if you're only interested in events from one object, you can also filter and pass in the object that you want to listen to. So that's also very useful. But it's very easy to get yourself into a stage where you have tons of different notifications that you're getting more than you want. Yeah, in fact, right now when I code, I tend to actually write Two methods I, I keep pretty standard. One is the sort of set up the set up notifications and then remove notifications and just call that in my view to load and, and any notifications I need to do there are set up in one method and any notifications that need to be removed, of course, or all, or just removing self from as an observer removed in that, in that remove notification call. It makes it a little bit easier when I'm setting things up to not forget to, to set up the individual removal at the end at some point in that dialog, as you mentioned. Yep. Useful trick I think you alluded to is if you call remove observer and pass self, you'll drop all your notifications. So it's a quick thing if you've subscribed to a bunch of different ones, maybe you've created some notifications in code that you don't really have all of them at once. You can you can stop listening to all of them if you just remove yourself, remove observer self. So you mentioned with KVO the the super super clunky API. I feel like someone on a previous episode was was talking about some kind of open source options that are out there to to make it easier to deal with 
with KVO, but I can't remember what the name of the library was. Do you guys remember that? Sounds familiar. I can't remember what it, what it is. <laughs> I, I mean, I imagine there's a lot of ways you can make things easier. I mean, we've got a dynamic language with Objective-C and runtime, so this type of thing is definitely possible to clean up, but the tools Apple gives you are pretty limited. Yeah, I mean, it's just a really, really horrible API. So there's Mike Ash has a thing called Mike Ash KVO, MAKVO Notification Center from 2008, but I don't know if that's one. It's irritating me. I can't remember what the... Oh, bubble wrap. No, never mind. I'm going to figure it out halfway through this and come back to it. I feel, I feel a pick coming on. <laughs> I'm calling I'm calling it right now. Oh, it's my pick. It's my pick. He's going to find it. The thing that I've always thought would be a good... I guess I'm in the same boat that I've never really used KVO much because it's, to be honest, it's a little bit intimidating. The place that I've always thought it would be potentially a good fit is to do kind of view models in the the kind of the MVVM sense where you have a kind of an object that represents, that's kind of a logical representation of your UI, and then you just modify that kind of plain old, that Ponzo, that plain old NS object to, like, from your controller, you just modify that guy in order to make changes to the UI, and then you'd use KVO to kind of somehow bind changes to that object to actual changes in UI views. It seems like that's a nice approach, but it also is very, it's a divergence from the standard kind of Coco way of doing things, so maybe that's why I haven't heard of people doing that. Seems like a good idea to me, though. So you'd have one class with all your outlets and your actions, yeah. which interface with the view, and you have a Ponzo class that listens for those changes when they happen and they update, and from there you kind of do things with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that you'd essentially, that view model... Maybe view model isn't the right word. Maybe it's a presenter or something. I always get all of these MV star patterns mixed up. But uh, yeah, you'd have a a one kind of object that acts as the interface to the UI layer, essentially. And it uses KVO to... How would that work? I guess it would use kind of the standard kind of binding to actions and all that stuff to react to interactions with the UI from the user. And then the flip side is it would have properties on it which you could modify in the uh which you could modify from non UI code in order to affect changes in the UI. But I guess I'm not sure if that makes KVO would make sense though there because I then that something would have to be observing the changes to that view model. I guess a controller could be watching for changes in the view model and then the controller would update the UI. I don't know. Maybe yeah, I mean, this is the reason why no one's done it. <laughs> yeah. Well, MVVM, that's, it's a thing in iOS. People are doing it. You know, yeah. last, over the past year, people have been talking about it quite a bit. I haven't seen a lot of code, you know, that I, that I encounter as a very common pattern, but it's at least been talked about. And I imagine people are doing stuff in production with it. So we've talked about delegates and we talked about KVO. You said there was a third and fourth. One was blocks and the other was something else. We talked about delegation as well. Yep, the first three, I think we're Delegate Pattern, Observer, NS Notification Center, and KVO, those are three. There's a fourth way of communicating with different objects, and that's just using blocks, you know, more of an asynchronous style, where you pass in something that you want to happen when this event occurs, and let them call it. And the method doesn't have to know anything about the stuff that it's causing to happen, but it just kind of says, calls your block. If this block is not nil, call it, and whatever happens, happens. It's a very powerful pattern. And it's a more recent addition as well, right? I mean, blocks were available, what, as of, what, five or six? 
Wait, four? Is it very early in four, and no one used them like okay. I was four, I, I think. I'm, I'm sure no one actually used them, but I think they were available. <laughs> <laughs> nope. yep. We've definitely started making a move to like a lot of our code replacing, in many cases, delegate callbacks to use yeah. with blocks to make the code more readable. So you know, as you're looking at code, you can actually tell what's going to happen for seven to scroll down. So sort of like a delegate section, delegate fragment and, and determining like when this thing returns, what is this going to do? I think the other thing that this is maybe an, another communication thing that we that isn't on the list that we started with is just directly kind of in, like giving someone a selector and having someone invoke that selector on you. It's kind of like the generic one method version of the delegate is just like here's a selector. I mean that's how that's how you bind to UI actions, right? Is under the covers, as I understand it, and I could be wrong. Under the covers. When you, uh, when you turn your nib in, into actual Objective-C objects, the, all of that binding stuff that you have to do with the clicky-draggy in Interface Builder, essentially you're just passing selectors to the view and saying, hey, when this event occurs, call this selector. So that kind of stuff, to me, is very... The stuff where I've done that stuff manually and kind of passed selectors around, I'd much rather pass a delegate around because it's a lot more flexible. And like you say, the code that handles the callback is right there when you're wiring things up rather than it being some separate method further down in the class. So what are some other good use cases for blocks? You talked about after a network operation, you know, this thing succeeded, do this, you know, on this thing failed. What are some other good examples of when to use blocks? I've actually done it when invoking a class and I've got multiple sort of courses of action. For instance, when I've done a edit form, I actually will pass in a block for save, cancel, and delete. And so then I actually have setting on that object the execution that needs to be done when someone taps either of those buttons. So that's one of the situations where I've, I've used it recently. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like a lot of times with more modern Objective-C, you use blocks where before you would have defined a custom delegate. So rather than making a custom subclass that has like the save, edit, and delete stuff on it, instead you just have a generic like class and you uh, make it polymorphic by actually just providing the different functionality with blocks rather than messing around with a ton of subclasses. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. So you've got your save view controller, which may do things like validation and things like that. But when it comes to time to actually saving, it doesn't care if you're saving to the file system, going to iCloud, or hitting a web service. You know, you can define that in, in the block that you're passing in, and if requirements change, you know, the view controller itself doesn't really have to change. Yeah, or if you've got, you know, I guess we already talked about the network example, but before blocks, if we were doing a network call, then we would have kind of had a delegate that kind of defines, you know, this is what I want you to do when the call completes. This is what I want you to do if the call fails. Maybe this is what I want you to do as each piece of data comes in. And you'd have to define a, a subclass for each of those, even if all you really wanted to customize was like what to do when it succeeds, right? You, you're happy to get the default behavior when it fails and you don't care about the lower level notification stuff. So you just want to, essentially you just want to subclass that one method for your custom behavior. And in the past, you would have to have subclassed it and and done a bunch of annoying housekeeping to pass in the context that you need for when you handle that the success, right? So, you know, when this network call succeeds, I want to do something with some other object, before blocks, you would have had to have created the subclass, passed that context into the thing when you create it, and then pass that instance to the thing that's doing the actual networking. 
the, the really nice thing I think about blocks is, well, one of the reasons we really like them is A, because they're super ad hoc and you can just throw it in there without having to do a bunch of ceremony. And B, you get closure. So you can refer to stuff that's in at the point that you're invoking the call at the point that the network call comes back. So you get this asynchronous. I think that's the big thing for blocks is the big use case for blocks is when you've got asynchronous behavior where you need stuff that was around when you started the behavior or started the thing to be available to you when you finished the thing. And before you had blocks, you'd had to have messed around with passing, explicitly managing that context and moving it in and out of different classes. And now you can just close over it and hope that automatic reference counting doesn't give you a memory leak. Absolutely. And my only minor gripe with that early on was there used to be, I used to see a pattern a lot where the block callback would contain on success and failure blocks. And I'm not a big fan of that. I'm, you know, the successes of Boolean, it was successful or not. I can actually handle everything inside of a single block in either of those cases. I prefer to do it that way anyway. Ah, that's interesting. If you're a JavaScript programmer, then you're kind of talking about the node style versus there's some other style. It's like, yeah, do you have one callback with some kind of flag in there or do you have two callbacks and move the logic around between the two? Yeah, and just, and just because in a lot of cases there's cleanup that needs to be done, and I tend to do it. Yeah, it's, it's common, right? Like most of the stuff you want to do is the same, whether it's a success or a failure. Absolutely. I think one of the things that we talked about a long time ago when we were, think, when we were talking about AF networking, a pattern that I really like, not in code I'm writing, but in kind of the APIs for libraries that I'm consuming, is the option to use either a delegate or a block. And essentially, the block version just creates a... There's, there's like a kind of a generic delegate implementer where you just give it the blocks or you can actually subclass stuff. And then you get to pick as a consumer of that API, as kind of a client of that library, I get to choose whether to use blocks or delegates depending on, on the context. It's really annoying when you have to do that plumbing yourself in your client code to turn a delegate-based API into a block-based API or vice versa. I really like the option of having both. That's a great point. As an API developer... I just threw up a little bit in my mouth having to do both. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Like you're one person doing it versus every single consumer doing it. Every single consumer doing things twice, two different ways, being able to do it. But oh, no, I see what you're saying. You know, twice the things that can go wrong and you have to test and I get yeah. I mean but but that's the point, right? Is you can do it as the person who's maintaining that kind of system, you have lots more kind of understanding of the moving parts and, and it, it's a lot easier for you to to get it right than it is for someone else to get it right and if someone else gets it wrong they'll blame the library not their crappy code right like if That's someone right. else doesn't understand how to, if you define callback x then you should also define callback y they'll just go ahead and screw it up and then say that there's a bug in your in your library because they're using it wrong so i, I agree as an apac consumer choice is good but you should <laughs> always do it my way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess that's that argument about kind of conventions, convention over configuration and how far do you go down that a rigid path that you can't change at all versus giving someone enough rope to hang themselves with. Perhaps a higher level API that's the common kind of use case and is it's very straightforward to use, but then it's implemented in terms of some lower level API that someone can pop the hood and use directly if, if they want to do something wacky and custom. And then they know at least that they're doing low level stuff, so they need to pay more attention to what they're doing. That makes sense. So one thing you touched a bit upon while talking about blocks is how much ceremony you have to do to create a solution. And I think that's a good indicator of kind of what approach you want to do. If you're coming from C++ Java land, 
you know, blocks are like voodoo. Notification center, like, what is that? So if you come from that world, which I did for a long time, like, you have to create a class for everything you want to do. Doesn't matter what you do. You have to create a class, subclass, do something with it, and you're used to it. On the plus side, you know, you get some compiler checks from that. So if you do something wrong, the compiler will catch it. If you come from a more dynamic worldview or history, you know, creating a notification, that might make more sense, or just a block where it's you don't have to do a lot of ceremony to create what you're doing. But the downside is your compiler's not going to catch you. If you misspell your notification or you sent the wrong one, you have nothing to, to catch your fall for it unless you're actually writing tests or you're you know catching at runtime. So a lot of it comes down to you know, what are you most comfortable with? What do you like? That's a, that's a really interesting observation. I mean, I think that kind of... I really agree with that, and I think that summarizes the different worldview of kind of people who are more on the dynamic side of things versus static. It's just like ceremony, but type safety or more compiler checking versus the freedom to do stuff whatever you, whichever way you want, but the freedom to also shoot yourself in the foot in a very subtle way that you only discover at runtime. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of a compiler as a bunch of unit tests you get for free. They don't actually tell you if your program works or not, but if you're basic sanity. <laughs> Step of the time. We talked very briefly about Notification Center. I've always been scared of Notification Center because it sounds like a bunch of global stuff, and I'm always really scared of global stuff. Am I? Is that an unfair characterization? Should I give Notification Center a better shot, or is it as scary as it sounds to me? But what do you mean by global stuff? Well, so the way I view Notification Center is essentially it's this big global message bus, and anyone can pump stuff onto it or pull stuff off of it and so you don't really have any way of like looking at your code and understanding who might be sending messages and who might be receiving messages but maybe that's just the way that i have seen people using it and that there are ways to use it more responsibly than that i think that's a fair characterization you know if you just throw stuff everywhere you may not have any sense or understand what's happening but i don't in practice i I found it very powerful you know, I can communicate with different objects just by creating a notification. So I, I found it to be very useful. And so I'm not, I wouldn't be too scared of it. You know, it's a solid pattern. It's the observer pattern. So we know when it works well, when it doesn't work well. And if you do get worried about being on the same notification center as everyone else, I believe you can kind of create your own sub one for kind of more customized stuff. I've never really had to do that in practice, but it, it's possible. I find it quite powerful and useful. I've not had the need to sort of use anything other than the default notification center. And I was actually looking for, um, someone told me one of the tools that I use for, for view debugging actually will allow you to monitor, a Spark Inspector will allow you to monitor notifications as well, if I'm not mistaken. So if you're using it as a tool for view debugging, I guess that may be a pick. And uh, you can use it as well to sort of monitor. You can see what notifications are being posted or, or observed by objects. So another thing we haven't really talked about is kind of testing code. You know, if you're a person that does write unit tests, how does being able to write tests affect your choice for these different patterns? You guys have any opinions? That is an excellent question. I have actually started in the past week a deep dive into starting to use testing, and I haven't gotten to a, a point where it's actually affected my choice of design pattern or communication pattern yet. I do think that's probably an excellent topic for another show, though. Do you typically wind up mocking out? Or stubbing out the delegate or KVO or, you know, notification center or whatever? Or do you actually, you know, do some integration tests with them? So with delegates, that's pretty straightforward. You just, you know, it's just code. So if you wanted to 
throw a mocking framework on there. You can do that or stub something out. So that's pretty straightforward. With Notification Center, it's a little less clear on how to do it. It turns out it's really not that difficult. You can, if you set a notification, you know, it, it happens in line. It's not something, something like goes off and happens at a different time. It actually happens in line. So whatever thread that you're on, it will it'll do the notification, the observer, the method will happen and the same thing. So you can notify what happens. And if you're using OCMock, you have, they have ways where you can notify that notifications happened, things like that. So you can write tests around this notification occurred and also, you know, verify that this happened when I sent this notification. And who's the guy who wrote the unit testing iOS book? Graham. Graham Lee. Graham Lee. Yeah. He's, he talks a little bit about testing kind of notification patterns. So that was, he had a pretty good chapter on that. I think with, with the testability of things, it comes down to whether when you're testing something, you have kind of, basically it comes down to can you do inversion of control? Can you change what something is talking to during testing so that you can isolate it? So that's why people who do a lot of testing like dependency injection is because rather than someone inside, rather than in the guts of a class, something newing up a new class. If someone does that, then you can't inject something in between those two things because the one thing is directly invoking an instance of the other thing. So you, you don't have a seam in which to insert testability. The same, you can use the same kind of lens to look at how testable these different approaches are. Like a delegate, for example, is very easy to inject because like you said, all you need to do is just create a, a fake version of the delegate and just make sure it's interacted with correctly. Same thing with blocks, right? Like you can just give the thing a block that keeps track of whether it's being called or not, but it ends up... Blocks is just more housekeeping because you have to... Ironically, you know, blocks in general tend to mean less less housekeeping and less ceremony, but in terms of testability, they end up being, I think, more work because you have to... You end up having to do a bunch of custom stuff in your test code to keep track of whether the block has been invoked or not. Yeah, especially if you have to check parameters, you're looking for this value. Yeah, that's then a blocks really get point. kind of a pain, and if it's a if it's a value type, then it's another thing of pain. So mocking frameworks with blocks can be a pain, but it turns out you could. It's if you just want a subclass, a class like old school Java TDD, then it, a lot of the code becomes fairly easy to test. You can just put a method that checks what you want to check. So if you do the old school kind of subclass and test, yeah, like the test specific subclass thing. Yep. I think, I feel like notification center would be tricky to test. I'm not, I can't put my finger on why, but the action at a distance kind of feeling makes, makes me suspect that it would be a little bit tricky to, to verify whether it's being used correctly or not. Yeah, it seems like it, it is because it's this nebulous, you know, Apple provided framework that we don't fully understand, but practice, it's pretty simple to check that this notification occurred. And you can also do things like subclass and listen for a notification and, and set a flag, pass your test that way. Yep. So in practice, pretty simple. Uh, Notification Center is actually pretty easy to test. Okay. KVO, I have no clue. I think you're probably just looking for the side effects and hoping they happen as you want. (laughs) Yeah, I think KVO would actually be really hard because if you wanted to simulate an object changing and then verify things happened, I guess you would just pass in the object and then kind of tickle it from your test, right, and change it in your test and then check that stuff happened. But it feels like you would... I suspect you'd have to do a bunch of housekeeping in each test to kind of pass it in the right way and then invoke things and then mess with it and then check that things change the right way. Yeah, it feels like that would be quite tricky to simulate all the different scenarios in the KVO. Yeah, you're calling observe value for key path with all these different things and just making sure that what you're calling in is what you're going to be getting from the system and hoping you get it right. 
Does the testability of an approach affect your willingness to use it? It does for me. Yeah, if you're looking at the lifetime of a software product, you know, being able to test, that adds a lot of value, especially if yeah. this is something that's going to be around for a long time. So definitely it's a factor in it. I mean, if you can create super clean code that's a little bit harder to test, that's going to last, you know, you can sacrifice a little testability. Mm. But in general, you know, it's something definitely something I consider. I think for me, as much or maybe even more so than the actual testability of it, experience has, has shown for me that if something's easier to test, it generally is just easier to work with. So, you know, things that are loosely coupled and highly cohesive tend to be easier to work with and easier to test. So generally, I'm looking for stuff that's easy to test because it tends to be easier to work with in general and therefore easier to maintain and extend over time and all the rest of the stuff that you're doing but yeah, I think it's a truism that I heard years ago, and I found it to be very true. If something is easy to test, it's easy to change. That is true, or at least mostly true. I can't mostly think of it. I can't think of an instance where it's not, but it seems like there's got to be maybe one crazy case where that's not the case. Chuck, it is a hundred percent true in every case. <laughs> keep, keep repeating that. I can definitely remember times when it's not the case, but unfortunately, I can't remember the example as to why it's not the case. Yeah. Actually, ironically, I think. Having spent more time in functional languages recently, and you know, this is a world that we are hurtling towards with Swift. The testability there, there tends to be less of a correlation there because, yeah, you tend to have more like internal stuff that's not really testable, but you don't really need to test it because it just works. Which I always feel a bit nervous saying that because I've spent so much of my life telling other people that they're wrong when they say that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Those are starting to be the cases that I'm seeing is very pure kind of functional code tends to not lend itself to testing very well, but it also appears to not need as much testing. Yeah. So what makes it not easy to test? When I think of functional code, you, know, you pass in some values and you get a response. You know, you, it turns into some different value. That's something that, like that would be yeah. pretty easy to test from like the outer shell layer. Yes, that's exactly it. It's easy to test it from the outer shell layer. The public parts of it are very easy to test. So the big difference is, I think the big difference is, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around it, but I think the big difference is with functional code, you tend to use closure as the way to relate things together. And whereas with object-oriented code, you use different classes and the classes communicate with each other or different objects, different instances, and they communicate with each other. If you want to test a object in isolation, an instance of an, an object in isolation in OO code, that unit testing, it's very easy to do. You just new up an instance of the object. With functional code, because you're using closures, a lot of times that internal stuff isn't available for you to to kind of get to. You, you It's just hidden inside of a larger function. So that means that you end up doing a lot more integration tests and a lot less kind of lower level isolated unit tests. Which is weird for me because I come from the mockists kind of school where I really like isolating each little thing that I'm working with and kind of testing it in isolation and then doing some integration on top. Whereas with functional programming, I find myself most of the time just testing the high level integrated piece and I can't get to the low level stuff to test it. Okay, that's interesting. You brought up another subject that we didn't touch at all, you know, Swift. Does the Swift language going to change our approach for these communication patterns? I strongly suspect that we will use a lot more blocks than we do today. I agree. I I think Objective-C, the block syntax is not really that friendly. I got a pick coming up based on that. You guys can probably figure out. But I I forget every time I have to do a block. I'm like, wait a minute. Do I do the caret here, the 
parentheses. Where do I put my void? I don't know. I always forget. So I think that's one thing. I think blocks will become a lot easier, a lot less. Well, for, for people that are coming from more functional languages, I'd be curious, what other patterns can we expect to maybe to be able to use with Swift? I mean, you're still familiar with some of these other ones, having worked with Objective-C for a while, but I'm not really familiar with some of the patterns that are sort of more prevalent in functional programming. I think the big one, and I'm not totally sure if this counts as a kind of topic of kind of communication patterns, but the, the big thing that you see in functional versus OO, and then definitely for Swift, is pattern matching rather than polymorphism, or pattern matching is the means for polymorphism. So today in Objective-C, if we want something to, you know, two things that look the same from the outside but behave differently internally, then we use uh, subclassing or we implement a protocol and so delegate, that's how delegates work, right? Like every, every table view delegate looks like a table view delegate, but it behaves differently depending on what the subclass is. With functional languages that have pattern matching, like Swift does, you end up using pattern matching as your switching mechanism rather than subclassing, rather than kind of dynamic dispatch. So I think that that's one big shift that we will probably see in like five years time or something is, is using pattern matching as the mechanism for deciding what to do rather than subclassing. But I'm not totally sure how that relates to the kind of stuff we're talking about with like handling network calls or, or you know, registering custom callbacks and, and things like that. That makes sense. Now, I think KVO is going to be less useful because that relies on NS object, which I don't think we have in Swift. I wouldn't know for sure before I. Ah, that's interesting. I think it's available, but by default. Oh, I don't know. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to make an idiot of myself in public. That's kind of funny, though, that it, to think that that's an entire mechanism that doesn't that just isn't really going to be available to us anymore. I wouldn't well, be is. shocked you, if if it's available, but maybe the the way that the language is structured would you know encourage us to use a different means of doing things. Yeah, with Objective C, almost everything's an NS object. With Swift, that's probably not the case where everything's going to be an NS object. Or it may be neatly wrapped around it and given a little bit different interface. I'd be interested to know this, but I don't know for sure. Well, luckily, I am a full Stack Overflow developer. (laughs) (laughs) So I searched on Stack Overflow. I scrolled down to the answer, skipped the question, (laughs) skipped the first answer, which didn't have enough upvotes, and it says yes and no. So that's the answer. (laughs) <laughs> nice. I All feel right. better and worse. Who wants to feel smart and by reading the answers from Stack Overflow? Yeah, I from Slezik. <laughs> so Thank basically, you, I think the answer is that you're right, Jaden, that you can still do KVO on Objective-C objects, but Swift doesn't have anything built in because Swift doesn't derive. The Swift objects don't derive from NS object. But there is some other mechanism. That's good to know. So we can still do that. So we we didn't really talk about this mechanism that I don't think I've really seen in the wild much because it's quite low level of just directly invoking a selector or directly sending a message via. Uh, I, I'm totally spacing on what the the method is, but you know you know you can target action. Yeah. Yeah. All of that stuff. I've not actually used that in the wild. I don't. I've not even encountered it very much in code. I mean, there's a, a few instances where I've actually performed selector. But or you know attaching the selector to an object, for the most part, use the other you know the uh, main patterns, yeah, verification delegations, and and then more recently blocks. So the one time that I've done this is really really dynamic code where I'm doing dynamic dispatch based on something that came over the wire from a network call. So I wrote this library that would um, 
But essentially, it's remote procedure invocation where you send a JSON, a chunk of JSON to to your iPhone app, and it will invoke a method based on the shape of that JSON. And, and for stuff like that, you have to use that super, super dynamic kind of perform selector stuff. But it is seriously clunky to use. The API makes KVO look good. Yeah, definitely. So it's definitely possible to pass around selectors. You know, it's a, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but the cell, you know, you do the add selector and you have your method signature. And that's something you can pass around and you can invoke on any object. It may crash, but you can do a lot of things with it. So that's another option that I don't see as much lately, but if I look at older code, I see that a lot more frequently. Yeah. You know, I mean, the old way to do button presses was to pass in a selector. I mean, I think that is still the way it works under the covers, is it not? It probably is. I've done that where when I don't want to use nibs for whatever reason, uh, and this was a while ago that I last did this, but building the view hierarchy totally by hand and doing wiring up all the actions by hand, you're essentially passing a selector to the UI control and saying, hey, call this when this happens. And then internally yep. in that, that UI control, presumably internally, is at some point calling perform selector with the thing that you passed in. I'd agree with you, but I have no idea. I think you're right. <laughs> the only other thing that the way it might be working and I might just be talking out of something is using the kind of the dispatch hierarchy doodad thingy, event bubbling, whatever it's called in iOS. Responder chain. Thank you. <laughs> that thing. Doodad bubbling. I like it. Yeah. Well, is there any other thing that we should talk about before we get to the picks? We've been at this for about an hour. I think it's a good base. I think we're all right. All right. Well, then let's go ahead and do some picks. Pete, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, I've I've only got one pick this week. Maybe I've got two. Pick number one is a Yegi rant. So there's this guy, Steve Yegi. If you haven't heard of him, then he's a very smart, thoughtful guy who tends to write these very long, rambling rants about the state of the world in software development. He used to do it a lot more in the early 2000s. James' comment about the kind of the static if you come from a statically typed background versus dynamically typed background, reminded me of this rant that he wrote a long time ago where basically he describes software engineering as having its own political axis ranging from conservative to liberal. And essentially he says that conservatives, kind of the equivalent of political conservatives in the software world, like statically typed languages and the equivalent of liberal people in the software world like dynamic languages. And if you're like me, you will start reading this and be very skeptical and think it's just a really contrived argument. But actually, the more you, more I read it, the more I was like, huh, hmm, maybe he's got a point. So it's a very long read. It's like almost a, it could be a short book, but uh, I think it's a, a worthwhile thing to read. And he's he's got a fun kind of irreverent writing style. So I have no idea what the title of this rant is, but I'll just call it the Yegi rant. Now, I've talked for long enough, so I guess that's my one pick for today. Cool. Alondo, what are your picks? I have three, actually. One, because I started working uh, in the last week trying to really get my head around and, and practice test-driven development, there's a really good post on John Reed's quality coding site on using app code, which is another tool that I've been trying to use more recently for better TTD. And actually, he sort of highlights a lot of the advantages app code has over Xcode in using TDD and as far as the tools and, and quick and shortcuts. In addition to that, Spark Inspector was a tool that I mentioned while we were talking that does allow you to view notifications. I've used it on occasion for view debugging more than anything else. And I still find it more useful than the view debugging that's a part of that we now have in Xcode. And then finally, an oldie that I really did enjoy, and I think someone mentioned earlier 
I thought that I had it reminded me of this article that Matt Gimmel wrote on API design some time ago. Um, there's still some really good nuggets in there as well. And I do go back and look at it occasionally and find, you know, helpful when writing even locally consumed APIs. So I've included that one as my third and final pick. Awesome. Jane, what are your picks? So I'm going to have two picks. So I mentioned a little bit that I always forget block syntax. So I've, I've got a site that you can check out anytime you need to figure out how do I declare a block in Objective-C, you know, local variable, property, method parameter. It's called goshdarnblocksyntax.com. <laughs> and there is a not-safe-for-work version, which I'm sure smart readers can deduce, which I tend to type because I'm forgetting how to where to put my voids. But yeah, it's a great resource. You know, how do I pass a block as an argument to a method call? Well, here it is, one page. So gosh darn block syntax.com. The second one, I went for training this weekend for the Technovation Challenge, which is encouraging young women, teens, up to early adults to build mobile apps. And they've got a real, I don't remember the name of the language, but it's similar to Scratch, where you just drag things along the thing where you can create loops and do logic and things like that. Technovation Challenge. It runs on some weird phone. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it. Android. I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> it was invented by MIT, the app innovator. That's what they're using, but it allows people to drag things onto a screen and actually show up on an actual phone, an Android phone, so they can create their package and send it to their friends and things like that. It's really cool. So to get young women coding, developing apps. So Technovation Challenge. I believe it's yearly and it's starting up soon. So they always need mentors. So check it out and there's probably something happening close to you. Plus one on that. I know I always plus one your picks, but yeah, we've done a few, quite a few, fair few thought workers have been mentors for this, and it sounds like a really fun program and very satisfying to do, so I recommend getting involved. All right. I've got one pick. I keep thinking that I picked this last week, but I don't think I did. I've been reading this book, The Legacy Journey by Dave Ramsey, and it's a book about his view on wealth, specifically as he reads it from the Bible. So if you if the Christian thing is not your thing, then... This may not be the book for you, but it has profoundly impacted me both on a financial level, the way I think about things, and a faith level as far as the way I think about specific things. And so I really enjoyed it. I actually cried while I listened to it a couple of times. So I found many of the principles in there very inspiring. So I'm definitely going to pick that. And then I just want to throw out as a reminder that I am going to be doing the JS Remote Conference. It's going to be at the beginning of February. So uh, go check it out at jsremoteconf.com. And that's it. Those are my picks. Very cool. All right. Well, I don't think we have any announcements. So uh, we'll wrap up the show and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreaksShow.com slash forum. 